Harvest. Isn't it good to be worshiping with your church family, right? This is the best day of the week. Love it. Good to be with you this morning. Hey, I mentioned this last Sunday, but I want to remind you that today, after the, the time of studying God's Word, we're going to have an opportunity to do some open mic testimonies. Um, and so, specifically thinking through how has God been working in your life over the last four weeks as we've talked about this topic of biblical love. What is biblical love? If God's been working, if he's been moving, convicting you, teaching you, uh, you'll have an opportunity to give God the glory for that. Right? He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our glory. So I would encourage you to come ready to share. And if you're new here, if this is your first or second Sunday, glad to have you here. Uh, you don't need to worry about coming up for the open mic time. You can just sit back and enjoy hearing how God is moving and working. I've always found it encouraging to be reminded that our God is alive. Right? He is alive, and he's worthy of praise. I should probably introduce myself if you're new. My name is Nick Lees, and I serve as a senior pastor here at the church. I'm very, very glad to have you here, glad to be able to open up God's Word to study it with you this morning. See, we're continuing a verse-by-verse series through 1 Corinthians. And over the summer, we've slowed way down, in chapter 13 specifically, to, to really go word-by-word almost. Not verse-by-verse, but word-by-word. Um, and we're trying to answer the question, well, what is love? What is biblical love? We're about halfway through. We've spent four weeks here in chapter 13, and, and counting today, if you measured it out, we have four more weeks to go. And so we're, we're still working through this, what is biblical love? And, and thus far in the study, we've learned, right, love is patient and kind. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not envy or boast. Those are the things that Paul's been teaching the Corinthians and that we've been picking up on and learning and evaluating. And each one of those attributes challenges us in a different way. And I hope that you would say, yes, I have been convicted by the Holy Spirit in particular ways in my life. And I was talking with some folks last week after the Sunday services, and I said, you know, it was interesting. Right at the beginning of the 9 o'clock service last week, as we're here worshiping like we were just doing, I'm sitting up here in my normal you know, front row seat all by myself. No one ever comes and sits with me. But uh, anyways, uh, I, was, I was convicted. The Lord was working on my heart. And I realized there were some things that I needed to address and I needed to bring before him and, and confess and repent of. And I'm so thankful for that, that God's word has immediate application to our lives and that he allows it to convict us and challenge us to change. My hope is that that's been happening for you as well, that God the Holy Spirit has been working in you to convict you and to help you see ways that you need to grow in being a loving person, a loving Christian it's so much more freeing when we walk in a way that pleases Christ rather than living in a way that puffs ourselves up or that's selfish. God's way is so much better. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves and with one another, we would admit there's still a lot of work to be done. Right? As Christians, we have a long way to grow, go in growing as loving people. And so really, as we continue to study this topic, we have our work cut out for us. So maybe it's time right now just to stop and bow our heads. I think it'd be good for us to pray and to give God thanks because he doesn't leave us to our own devices or our own strength in this fight for holiness. He gives us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us and he's given us his son who saved us. So let's go before the throne of mercy and grace and give God thanks for those things. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we, we want to give you thanks and praise for, for who you are and what you've done in us. And we want to incline our hearts to you this morning. Thank you for not leaving us alone and trying to figure out how to grow and how to live this life. Thank you for providing us with your authoritative and sufficient word that teaches us how to live. Thank you that we have a standard of truth to turn to 
and that challenges us and convicts us to change. Lord, thank you that it's not only incredibly deep, but it's also incredibly practical. It shows us how to live and how to walk in a way that pleases you. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us that. Thank you, Father, for giving us that. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us and allowing us to be able to comprehend what we read. Thank you for enabling us to change, that we can be convicted of sin by you and realize, okay, something has to, has to go, something has to change. And thank you for allowing us to fulfill what God has called us to do. And thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth and dying in our place. Thank you for living that perfect, sinless life that we could not live. Thank you for going to the cross on our behalf, taking the wrath of God that was meant for us so that we could have the hope of heaven, so that we could have the hope of change. Your love is amazing. And as we learn more and more about biblical love today, please help us to not only learn it, but then to apply it in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you ready to get into the Word of God this morning and dig in? Good. All right. Well, let's have our ushers come forward with the Bibles. If you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures to study, if you put your hand in the air, they will gladly give you a Bible to use. Uh, we want everyone to be able to open up God's Word and be able to read it for themselves. And so um, please do that. Everyone else, go ahead and turn to the New Testament. We're going to be, again, in the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So that's the back half of your Bible, page 822 of the uh, Bible that they're handing out to you right now, page 822. And as we've done before, and as I like to do, I want to do a little review as we're getting there. So this one's going to require you to be interactive, though. So once you get to the, the passage, you know, go ahead and give me your eyes, because we're going to have some things on the screen that I need your help in figuring out. And so just shout out the answers if you know them, right? So here's the first one. If I do not have love, I am nothing. Good. Very good. If I do not have love, I produce nothing of value, right? Good. You guys are right on it. If I do not have love, I gain nothing of value, right? Very good. So started off kind of easy. The blanks were all the same. Where does this come from, right? This is the summary of the first three verses of chapter 13. As Paul explains, love is foundational for everything. I almost gave you the next blank, so I better not... I get ahead of myself. Here's what we've taken away from it. Love is foundational to our, you know what this one is? Life. Good. Life and ministry. Yeah, this, this is so key for us as Christians. Love is foundational to all that we do. If we do not have love, we produce nothing. We are nothing. It is so important for us if we're going to reflect God accurately. Now, the reason for that is because God is Love, right? Yeah, God is love. And God is the source of love and also the definer of love. Yeah, very good. You got it. You're knocking it out of the park, right? So God is the very source of love. In our world, there are a lot of places that you could turn to to try to define love. In fact, if you went out in the streets and asked people, hey, how do you define love? You're probably going to get a lot of different answers. And so as Christians, we need to know, well, where would we turn? How would we define love? And it makes sense to go to the creator of all things, right? He is the source of truth. He is the one who is love himself. And so we want to turn to him and find out how God defines love and how he has created love. So what is love, right? That's what we've been seeking to define this whole summer series. And how, here's how we define it. Biblical love is actional, intentional, and sacrificial. 
Sacrificial is for the good of another. All right? We've got some work to do on that one, it sounds like. Biblical love is actional, intentional, and sacrificial for the good of another. It's not about me. It's about loving God and loving others. And this love is modeled for us by who? God. Yeah, absolutely. God. And commanded of his followers. All right? So this is, this is expected of us. God is the one who has created love. He's the one who's modeled love for us. And it's expected of us to walk in his ways and in his footsteps in that regard. Now, we've hit a lot of different passages over the course of the last four weeks on those topics. I'm not going to go over all of them. Uh, That would take too much time this morning. But it is important for you to know where you would find this in Scripture, right? You need to know why you believe what you believe. And so I would encourage you, go back through those passages that we've studied. And I want to give you just one of them to consider for this morning. It's Romans 5.8. Here's what Romans 5.8 says. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? So there's a great example of how God, in his love, acted intentionally and sacrificially. Right? He did something for our good. He sent his son to earth to die for us. And also, Jesus demonstrates his love by acting intentionally for our good. Right? He sacrificed his life. He came here to earth to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine, to die in our place. Those are some amazing truths. Those are things we should not take lightly. And as we worship in song and as we worship through the word, it should evoke a response in us of, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for me. While I was yet a sinner, you died for me. And we can have the hope of being brought back into a right relationship with God because of what he's done. And that is a great hope indeed. That should rock us this morning. We have the hope of heaven, and that's a glorious truth to be able to celebrate because of God's love. Well, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our passage for today. Um, similar to the other few weeks, you know, we're not, even, we're not even hitting a full verse. We're doing part of a verse. So last week we hit the end of verse 4 of chapter 13 and the very first part of verse 5. Today we're going to finish up verse 5, so it's the, the middle and the end of verse 5. And since it's so short, I'll repeat it a few times for us to try to help it sink in. So 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, B and C, says this. It, meaning love, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So that's what we're going to be digging into today, trying to figure out, okay, well, what does this mean if love is not seeking its own way, if it's not irritable or resentful, what does that mean for you and and I today, right? And so similar to other weeks, we're going to start by defining the terms. And the first one's actually not even really a term, it's a whole phrase. And the phrase is, love does not insist on its own way. And maybe some of you are already starting to say, "Uh uh-oh, here we go again. He's going to tell me that I have to love others, I have to serve others. And yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to say, right? That has been the repeated theme through this chapter. And this love does not insist its own way is very straightforward. It literally means love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own interests, its own ways, right? It's not about me. It's not about you. And if you think about the definition we just gave for biblical love, One of the words was sacrificial, right? But biblical love is sacrificial. It's for the good of another. 
It's not about you. Biblical love is not about self. Biblical love calls us to die to ourselves and to live in a way that loves God and loves others. And this is clear over and over again in this passage and in Scripture. It's like God knew, right, that we would struggle with selfishness and that we would need to be challenged in this area, right? God, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about others. And Paul makes this point very clear in this letter when he speaks to the Corinthians earlier in the letter in chapter 10. So if you want to turn back a few pages to chapter 10, look at verses 23 and 24. Paul's instructing them about how they should respond to meat that's sacrificed to idols. And he starts in this passage by giving a quote that they had been saying. The Corinthians had said, all things are lawful. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Right? There you have it. (laughs) Rather than boasting in your freedoms about how you can do whatever you want, a Christian should seek to serve. They lay down their freedoms. They do what blesses and serves others. Could it be any more clear? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Hmm. What happens if everyone actually lives that standard out? Right? If, if I seek to serve you, if I seek your good and, and you, vice versa, seek my good, everyone wins, right? Everyone is blessed. There's no lines drawn in the sand. There's no arguing. There's no how selfishness being presented there, biblical love wins the day. That would be an incredibly great way to live and function. Can you imagine what that would be like in your homes or in your workplace, out in the community? That would transform everything. And I've been in a lot of counseling situations where, you know, it, whether it's husband and wife or whoever it is, people are in the room and they are so focused on serving themselves that it's chaos in their relationship. Where they've drawn lines in the sand And they won't cross them. If only he loved me. Well, if only she gave me respect, then I would. Then you would what, right? Then you would obey God's word and love her or love him? No, that's that's so unbiblical. Your, Your love isn't based on how someone else treats you. Love isn't conditional. Don't buy into that line of thinking. Right, if my love is conditional, it's not love at all. You can't treat others based on how they treat you. As a Christian, love does not seek its own interests. And so even if someone's treating you poorly, you're called to love them. That's a hard calling. You're to do what's good and helpful for your neighbor, right? Whether it's your spouse, whether it's your kids, whether it's your literal neighbor, whoever it is that you share this earth with, you're to love them. You're to do what's good for them, to help them, even if they don't return that, or even if they don't initiate with that towards you. The beauty of living that way, though, is that you bless that person and you glorify God. What what tremendous fruit comes out of your life when you live this way? As I've had the opportunity to be around families that live this way or married couples who live this way, those are some of the most unified and peaceful homes to be a part of that I've ever seen, where they're seeking to serve one another and to bless one another and to love one another rather than to say, it's my way. You have to serve me. It's much different. I want to show you how Paul lives by this standard. We see this if you go just a little bit later in chapter 10, 
Go down to verse 31. Look at how Paul makes this the way that he seeks to live. Starting in verse 31, here's what he says. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, what Paul's doing here is he's calling the Corinthians to focus on doing all things for the glory of God and for the good of others. Right? We can't miss that. It's for God's glory and it's for the good of others. And that's Paul's way of living. He says, this is what I seek to do, and I want to commend it to you. But why does Paul live this way? What's his goal in living this way? That some might be saved. Right? For Paul, this is all about the gospel. He wants people to have the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ and to be rescued out of darkness. He doesn't want to do anything that's going to set up a stumbling block for them and get in the way of them knowing Jesus. And if you think about that, Right? Think about if you treat your loved ones terribly, what's that going to do for your opportunity to share the gospel with them? It's going to remove that opportunity, right? Why would your unbelieving spouse care what you have to say about Jesus if you treat them poorly? Or maybe you're a parent with kids. Why would your kids care what you teach them about following Jesus if you're constantly sinning against them? Ouch, right? You know, that one hits home for me as the dad of four girls. God help us, right? to not insist on our own way. We need to lay down our lives for the good of others. We need to love them, even if they're not lovable. That's the standard. Biblical love doesn't insist on its own way. What it does do is it seeks the good of another. It sacrifices to serve others. Right? That's been made clear over and over and over again. And guess what? Who's the greatest example of this kind of love? Jesus Christ. Right? This is the pattern of Jesus' life and his ministry. Consider how it's portrayed in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 10, we see Jesus teaching his disciples. They've just been bickering with one another about who's the greatest and who's going to sit in the positions of honor at his right and left hand in heaven. So Jesus calls them to himself and he says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, that's Christ's example. That's what he taught. That's what he did. And just a little bit later in the Bible, in Ephesians 5, Paul, again, very succinctly, makes this statement in Ephesians 5, 2. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There's Jesus' example again, right? Jesus' example is the one that we are to emulate and imitate. Our obedience follows from Christ's finished work. He's rescued you. He's redeemed you from the bondage of sin. You don't have to sin anymore. You're free to choose to live for him in this way. And I find that an incredibly convicting idea because what that tells me is that when I choose to sin, it's exactly that. It's my choice, right? When I choose to be unloving, no one made me do that. I'm not enslaved to my sin nature anymore. I, in that moment, thought that that was what was best, so I pursued it. Ah, man, 
God, help me. I need you. Have mercy on me in those moments. Have mercy on us when we choose sin, even though we don't have to. Or we can choose to love the way God has loved us. We can emulate Christ and serve rather than to be served. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself regularly in the habit of saying, it's my way or the highway, right? I'm always right and these people are always wrong. That's a problem, right? You are proud and you need to confess that and you need to repent and turn away from it. That's against what Christ taught us. It is not your way or the highway. And we see that in a lot of different ways in our lives. I used to be in college ministry and uh, do a lot of premarital counseling. Newlyweds are always struggling with this, right? They come into the marriage and they think, well, my way is right. How I was raised is right and his way or her way is wrong. But those don't always go away. You know, I mean, there are oldieweds, right, who still have that problem and that struggle. Um, you know, there's problems in certain churches and denominations. We insist it's got to be this way and no other way on things that are not biblical principles. We see it in culture even. Culture has a definition of love. And if you disagree with them on it, guess what? You're a bigot. And so this isn't just a problem for the church or for Christians. As a human problem, we struggle with saying, you got to do things my way. I'm right and you all are wrong. It's a human problem. But as Christians, we are the ones who are called to put that to death. We're not allowed to live that way. We're called to live selflessly for the good of another. And the best way that we serve others is by pointing them to God, to his word. That's our standard of truth. That's who we seek to point them to. I want to share with you a very helpful memory verse. Uh, If you haven't ever taken time to really store this one up in your heart, this is a great one, especially as we're talking about putting down our pride. It's Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. And I've memorized this in the NIV, so I I tend to butcher it, so I'm just going to read it from the ESV here. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is an excellent passage to have stored up in your heart to help fight against insisting on your own way. Again, it's not about you. The standard is nothing from selfish ambition. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not self-seeking. And so as we think about this, as we think about, okay, well, how do I apply this to my life? You've hopefully already been thinking about some ways that need to change. But a good question to write on your bulletin at this point would be, where do I see myself seeking my own gain? Right? Where in my life do I see myself seeking my own gain? And wherever you see those patterns, that's a good place to start, to confess and to repent and ask God to help you to change. That's where you can grow in biblical love. Let's keep moving. That was just the first phrase. The second part of this passage is love is not irritable. And so to be irritable means this. It's to be provoked or to be upset at someone or something or also to provoke to wrath. So in this case, we're talking about now something that's being done to you, right? It's how you receive what's coming at you from someone or something. And and what will your response be to that person or to that thing? And you're going to notice as we continue to study The passage in the future weeks, we're entering into this part of love that deals with how you respond to others. What do you do when something's done to you? So when someone's pushing your buttons, 
right? What comes out of your mouth and out of your heart? God says, respond in love, not in wrath. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? You know that. I mean, when your buttons are pushed, it's really hard to respond in a loving way. This goes hand in hand with what Jack taught us a few weeks ago. I learned that love is patient, right? Love is long-suffering. It's not easily provoked. Well, how do we do that? How are we, one, not easily provoked, and then when we are provoked, to not respond in sinful anger? Well, first thing you need to do is have self-awareness. You need to know the things that tend to provoke you, the things that get under your skin, that irritate you. And I imagine for most of us, we probably already know what those things are. And if you don't know, ask someone who knows you well, and they'll tell you, right? Because they know how to push your buttons. So they know what those things are. Could be silly things like how someone's driving. Could be how they chew their gum. Could be all sorts of little things like that, or maybe things more serious. Maybe as a parent, you really struggle when your kid gives you lip, right? Could be a variety of things. You know what they are. It's easy to be irritable, but it's hard to be loving. We even see that the Apostle Paul struggled with this a bit in his life. Let me share Acts 15 with you. Here's an example where Paul had to grow. It says in Acts 15, 39 and 40, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and they sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. The word sharp disagreement there is the noun form of the word irritable. See, something provoked Paul and led to a disagreement between him and Barnabas. They had done a lot of ministry together, and Barnabas wanted to bring along John Mark on the next journey they were going to go on. Paul wasn't a fan of that because Mark had left them in a different journey. So they had some issues there, right? There's not much said about this further in Scripture, so we really can't comment too much on it. All we know is two teams formed out of that, right? There's Barnabas and Mark on one hand, and they go on a journey, and there's Paul and Silas on the other hand, and they go on a journey. And so we see God bringing good out of something that originally started as not so good. But even Paul struggled with irritability here. And how you respond when provoked is probably the hardest part of all of this. What do you do when someone pushes those buttons? Paul teaches in this passage and in others that it's a combination of two things. It's the growing in patience that we just talked about, learning to be long-suffering, Right, So learning to allow people to push your buttons without responding, but also paired with that is putting off your own self-interest. Right, If you make life all about you, if, if you're puffed up, if you think, man, I don't deserve to be treated this way, it's going to be very hard for you not to respond and sin when someone is pushing your buttons. So you need to grow in patience and you need to put off self-interest. So you could say grow in patience and grow in humility. As you do those two things, then you will be less and less irritable. It'll be a lot harder to irritate and provoke you. We see this in the Corinthian church, uh, that this was a struggle for them. We've talked a bit about how in their church there were different groups. One group walked around puffing themselves up. Look how great we are. Look at how wise we are. We have all these giftings and, and we have wealth and so we're better than you. That was one group. The other group was obviously the, the people who didn't have those things, and they're, they're being attacked. They're being told they're lesser. So for them, the temptation would be to respond with wrath. They were being provoked. It would have been easy for them to be resentful. 
No question, group one has arrogance and they're rude, right? Some of these things that we've learned about already. Well, the other group would have been tempted towards irritation and resentment. And it might be easy to say, well, yeah, group one is in the wrong. They are. So is group two. Both sides are choosing to love self rather than to love one another. And that's a common pattern, not only in the church, but in homes, in the workplace, in communities, right? We look out for ourselves rather than to love the other. It's easy to have a short fuse. It's easy to look at all the ways that you've wronged me and to be irritated by that, then to again respond with love no matter what you're doing to me. But when we're irritable, when we're easily provoked to wrath, it has a great cost, right? That destroys relationships and it, re- it robs God of, of his glory. So it's a very high cost indeed. So if you want to change, if you say, man, this is something I struggle with, how do I change? You have to have a right view of yourself. Right? Rather than being puffed up, rather than thinking, aren't I something? You've got to ask God, please humble me. Please make me low so that you might increase, Lord. Bring me back down to size. Help me to have a heart that seeks to serve others. Again, we heard this earlier in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, but I want to repeat it. May this be our prayer. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right? How different our relationships would be if we actually lived that out. Oh my goodness, it would be so much different. Anger and wrath would not rule the day. Instead, love would prevail. So I just want to challenge us again to have a moment of, of silence and prayer. If there's some things that you've already been convicted by, maybe you're someone who's quick to insist on their own way, maybe you're someone who's easily irritated and provoked to wrath, this is an opportunity to just come before the Lord, confess those things, and, and to get right with him. And so I'm going to give us a few moments of silence to do that, and then I'll lead us in a, in a prayer, and we'll come back to the last part of our passage. Jesus, our desire is to be clean before you. Our desire is to handle things in a way that pleases you and honors you. And yet, I mean, if we're being honest, we realize we can't do this on our own. Um, And we join with Paul in saying, Lord, we need you. I mean, every hour we need you. And we're so thankful that you tell us in your word that your grace is sufficient in our weakness. And so, Lord, we want to boast in our weakness that your grace would be shown to the world around us. Help us to be humble. Help us to honor you in the way that we respond to these issues. Help us to change. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I've been trying to weave prayer um, more thoughtfully into this sermon because it's such a powerful resource. And it's one I think as Christians we take for granted far too often. Some, something that God has given us to communicate with him about the things that are going on in our lives and in our world. And yet we often never even exercise that, that op- opportunity. So I want to challenge you to take steps to grow in the discipline of prayer. 
And there's actually been a group of us this summer who's been meeting uh, somewhat regularly to grow in these disciplines in prayer and in fasting. And so I want to invite you. We have two more opportunities to do that this month on the 14th and on the 28th. We'd love to have you come out. Those are Wednesday nights from 8 to 9 p.m. Again, we're just talking about and practicing prayer and fasting. Great opportunities to just humble ourselves underneath God's mighty hand. Well, let's talk about the last part of today's verse, which says, love is not resentful. This is meant to be a very powerful statement. Here's what it means to be resentful. It means to let one's mind dwell on or to keep a mental record of events for the sake of future action. To keep a mental record of events for the sake of future action. That, I think, is a powerful image. It's the idea that you've got this kind of list in your mind that you've written down that you can call up at any moment in order to put that person in their place, right? And before you say, well, there's no one that does that, uh, yes, there is. <laughs> I mean, we know that because it's here in the Word, right? So clearly it was an issue back then. But again, I've seen this in the counseling room. been with plenty of married couples who function this way, right? They've got this mental list. Look at all the ways that you've done wrong. And as soon as the next conflict comes up, those lists come out. Either one person or both persons has them, right? And they point to it and say, you've wronged me in all these ways in the past, therefore you're guilty now. How dare you talk to me about this? Right? It is so common. And again, it doesn't just have to be limited to marriage relationships. That can happen in any relationship. And many relationships have been sacrificed on the altar of resentment. Again, a high cost for having this in our lives. So the question we have to ask ourselves is Why? What is appealing about this path of, of living and loving this way, resentfully? And I'm sure there are probably different motivations for each person, but I think there's a common underlying theme. Right? We want to justify our position or even our sin. Here's why I'm right and you're wrong. You have no room to talk to me about my sin. Look at all yours, right? And you unroll the scroll. Right? We use that to justify our bitterness. I'm right to hate you in my heart because look at how you've treated me. We use that to justify getting vengeance. Right? Look at all you've done. I'm going to put you in your place. I'm going to finally give you yours. Or maybe we use it to try to exercise power or control over a relationship. Look at what all you've done. I'm never going to let you forget. Right? You're always going to have to serve me because I hold this against you. None of those is biblical love. Love is not resentful, keeps no record of wrongs. And think about this. Can you imagine if God functioned that way towards you? Right? Whew. That would not be good. We would have no hope. Right? That list would be very long, right? It'd be going out the door, down the road, right? Off to the Quad Cities, probably. There'd be no hope for re reconciliation and redemption in our relationship with God. No hope of heaven if he functioned this way towards us. So thank God that our God is not one who is easily irritated or resentful towards us. In fact, what our God has done is he sent his son to this earth to die for us, to reconcile and redeem us. He's the very opposite of resentful. He's paid the penalties. He knows all the wrongs, and, and yet he still made a way for us. Thank you, Jesus right? And as Christians, our calling is to represent and reflect our God accurately. So if our God is not irritable, if he is not resentful, then neither should we. And maybe you're thinking, okay, got it, but how do I change? How do I fight this? 
Well, God has graciously provided a way for us. It's called the practice of forgiveness. Right? This is a resource available to Christians. And it's something that's actually commanded and expected of us. Listen to Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 6, as Jesus is teaching his followers, here's what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Later in the same gospel, in Matthew 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, right? Thinking he's being generous. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And some translations would say 70 times seven. And the point there is it doesn't matter. Don't keep count, right? As many times as is necessary, you are to be ready to forgive. See, what Jesus is teaching in both of these passages is that forgiveness is not optional for his followers. We are to forgive as many times as that person comes to us and asks for forgiveness. And if we don't forgive, as we saw in Matthew 6, then the promise is our Father will not forgive us. Oh boy, again, there's one of those weighty teachings of Scripture. If we don't forgive, God will not forgive us. Now, Christians, we're called to forgive, we're commanded to forgive, but that's not the only reason that we forgive, not just because of the command, but also because we have been forgiven much, right? And so in light of all that Christ has done for us, how can we then not turn around and forgive a brother or sister for what they've done, which is comparatively small in regards to what we've done to our, our great God? And if you were to go into Matthew 18 and read the rest of that chapter, Jesus teaches a parable on that very fact. But I want to draw your attention to Ephesians 4.32, where Paul commands this of the church in Ephesus. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Right? So as you reflect on all that Jesus has forgiven you of, that is your motivation to call upon when someone sins against you and asks for your forgiveness. Yes, of course I can forgive you because of God's forgiveness towards me. And on the flip side, what does it say about your claim to know Christ if you won't forgive? Right? That's a serious issue. If you're someone who is not quick to forgive, if you hold grudges, if you're resentful, you might need to evaluate your claim to know Christ. Well, what is forgiveness? We're talking about forgiveness, but we haven't actually defined it. Let's talk about what it is and then how to do it. Forgiveness is an act of our entire person. It's a commitment that consists of three concrete actions. And so I want to walk through these three concrete actions. The first one is this. It's a commitment not to bring the issue up to the other person's harm. So you're not going to weaponize whatever they've done and use it against them and bring it up to hurt them. That's the first thing that forgiveness is. It's a commitment not to do that. It's also a commitment not to bring that issue up to other people, again, to harm that person. So you're not going to go around and say, you won't believe what so-and-so did to me. You're not doing that. Forgiveness is saying, no, I'm not considering that an option anymore. And then the third action of forgiveness is to not bring it up to yourself. Right? It's a commitment not to dwell on it in your own mind, in your own heart, to replay that over and over and over again, and ultimately that leads to bitterness. That's what it means to forgive. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to bring it up to others to use against you. I'm not going to bring it up even to myself, again, to use it against you. 
And forgiveness is very closely related to reconciliation. It's part of that process of bringing the relationship back together. When forgiveness happens, then there can be restoration of a relationship. You can be reunited. So in the midst of a world that's hurting from conflict and sin, right, this is the answer. Forgiveness is how we we reconcile. Forgiveness is how we bring things back together. Now, a few things that are often misconceptions about forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you forget, right? There are some things that you won't be able to forget as a human. And thankfully, you don't have to forget in order to forgive. You can still make this commitment even when you remember it. But the choice is you're not going to dwell on it. You're not going to intentionally remember it. You're not going to try to bring it up to cause bitterness. You're going to do your best to put it behind you and not bring it up again. Another common thing I hear often is, well, I don't feel like forgiving. I've struggled with that. I know that I have in the past. And the beauty of following Christ is it doesn't depend on our feelings, right? We can obey even if we don't feel like it. And by God's grace, what often happens is when we obey, when we take that step to do what he says, yes, I forgive you, the feelings often follow. Right? We, we, we have that pleasure of, okay, I, I did what pleased Christ here. And forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that all the consequences are removed. It's not saying that what happened isn't a big deal or that it shouldn't have some kind of consequences in, involved with it. Some sin is a clear violation of the law, right? And there will be legal involvement in, the, in our world. Like our world will punish or do justice accordingly. Other sins maybe don't violate the law, but there's still lasting consequences and there's things that need to happen as a result of that. You can still forgive the guilty person, but allow those consequences to play out as they need to. That's a challenging one. In the moment of those things happening, you need to continue to keep that commitment, right? It's a point in time, yes, I forgive you, but it's an ongoing commitment into the future, even if there's lasting consequences and effects. So that answers the question, what is forgiveness? But then how in the world do we do it? Something I've seen over the years is that many Christians have never been taught on how to actually forgive. There are a whole lot of unbiblical ideas in our culture about saying I'm sorry or apologizing, but those are not found in Scripture. Those fall far short of the actual practice of forgiveness that God has given us. We have something much better that's much more effective to put into practice. And so here's how this works. I want to walk you through it step by step. Forgiveness is a transaction that involves multiple parties. And so the first step of doing forgiveness is the person who sinned confessing their sin. So step one, if you are the one who has sinned, you go and you confess what you've done and you acknowledge that it is sin. Uh, You need to be specific, right? I have sinned against you by, and then stating whatever it is, you know, speaking poorly about you or gossiping about you behind your back or I sinned against you by physically hurting you, whatever it may be. It needs to be clear what, that you're identifying what was wrong and what was sinful. You're saying what God says about it. Then step two, still on your part, if you're, the, if you're the one who's committed the sin, is to go and ask forgiveness for that sin. And again, words are very important. Words matter. And so you want to very, very clearly say, will you please forgive me? Because if you just say, I'm sorry, or if you just say, I apologize, you're not actually identifying what was sinful, and you're not giving them an opportunity to really respond to you. Right? Forgiveness involves multiple parties. And so when you, when you say, will you please forgive me? One, you're using God's words. Forgiveness is taught in Scripture. Apologies, and I'm sorry, are not in Scripture. 
But then two, you're giving that other party an opportunity to respond. They are involved in this process. They have to make a decision. Will you please forgive me for, and then again, explaining what the sin was. Now the ball's in the other person's court. Now they have an opportunity to enter into this conversation, right? They have a choice to make. Step three of forgiveness is now on the other person's side, they must grant forgiveness. Yes, I will forgive you. Right? That's what we've seen in Scripture. That's the call of a Christian is to forgive as often as is needed and is required. And when this happens, the transaction is complete, right? The, the guilty party has asked for forgiveness. They've laid out what the sin was. And the party that's been offended has chosen to, to say, yes, I will not consider that offense against you anymore. We are reconciled. This is behind us. And we can be reunited. This is a way to fight against resentment. But then when future conflict comes, you also must in that moment choose to remember this promise of forgiveness to not bring this back up again for that person's harm. And so what you have to decide today is which way will it be, right? Will you handle things God's way or will you continue to operate in a way that is resentful, in a way that stores up that record of wrongs? And no question that each one of these things we've learned about is very challenging. It's gonna require us to die to our old way of living. You have to say God's way is better, but it is indeed better. And I think a helpful analogy as we kind of wrap up this morning is this. I'm sure each one of us has walked through our kitchen at some point in the last month or so, and the trash is full, right? And you know the trash is full, but in that moment you think, ah, that's not a big deal, I'll deal with it later, right? You just, maybe you're lazy, maybe you're stubborn, maybe you're hoping someone else is going to take it out. Day one, that may not be that big of a deal, right? But day four or five, guess what? That trash is stinking and if you look closely, there's probably some stuff growing in it, right? It's, it's gross. You get to day 10, and it's really bad now, right? The whole house smells like it, rotten garbage, right? And there's probably flies all over the place. Let's not even talk about what happens when you get to day 31, right? And the trash is still there, right? If that's what happens in our home, in our kitchen trash, when we don't change it, why would you not take out your relationship trash, right? Why would you allow that to continue to pile up and corrupt and, and destroy and be rotten in your life? God has made a way for us to keep short accounts and to have our relationships in order. Let's take advantage of it. It's a good gift that he's given us. I'm gonna give us a time to close in prayer um, and then afterwards we're gonna have our open mic testimony time. And so if, if God's been working in your life, he's been challenging you, convicting you on biblical love over the last four weeks, if you could, while the worship team leads us, come up on either side of the aisles here um, and then we'll have a time for you to come forward and share what the Lord has been teaching you and then we'll close in worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house and to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ to praise your name and to, to be challenged from the word. Help us to be humble. That's been the theme this morning. Help us to be humble in our love, to consider others greater than ourselves, to not be easily provoked, and to certainly not keep a record of wrongs. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be convicting us, even right now, on where we need to change in these ways. I pray, Lord, that as we walk out of here today, we would be excited about the opportunity for growth and the opportunity for reconciliation and restoration. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.